Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Uh, hey, this is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Thursdays with uh, Trey or Mary Langston, depending on whatever's most likely to make you want to listen. This is the day where we get a chance to entertain uh, your questions and do our best to answer them. And uh, so I want to start by saying thank you for sending them. It's uh, one of the more enjoyable uh, 30 minutes or 45 minutes or maybe two hours, depending on how long it takes me to answer the question of the week. For me, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which, um, it's with a one hour a week, Mary Linkson actually has to take my call. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Trey. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I never, I never really, I never really even thought about having anybody else do it. But you're welcome for having you. <laughs> well, thank you for thinking of me. And you're right. We've got so many good questions, and I'm so grateful our listeners send them our way each week. Now, this week we have a lot of legal questions. Are you ready for those? No, of course not. If you see my <laughs> grades from law school, of course I'm not ready. No, I didn't, but I'd imagine they were pretty good. No, no, they, <laughs> they, uh, you know what they call the person that finishes last in his or her law school class? No, sir. A lawyer. <laughs> that really That's matter. a good one. You still made it. You still got that piece yeah, of paper. Yeah, barely. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, John Radcliffe finished law school, so that that that, that doesn't mean anything. But if there are legal questions, I'll do my best to try to answer them. I know you will. Well, we'll get started. Our first question I actually combined, and it's from Vern and Dennis, and they write, what does research show about mass killers, and do we know how many have been stopped beforehand? Uh, That's a great question. Um, It's the challenge with crime statistics, particularly prevention statistics is, I mean, how do you know? Mm-hmm. How do you ever, I mean, somebody could tell you they're about to go do something, but they may or may not independently change their mind. So it's crime prevention numbers are hard. I mean, crime numbers in general are tough, but uh, the specific answer to your question, if they're is data on that. I'm not familiar with it. I am sure that there have been, you know, and, and again, you know, mass killings, I think is four or more. So it's not just the school shootings, the mall shootings, the concert shootings. I mean, there were like several shootings in Philadelphia over the weekend, mm-hmm. some of which may qualify. I mean, there's there's a particular definition for mass shooting, but lay that aside. I am sure that someone has notified law enforcement 
that there's been a denial of an application to purchase a firearm. And just so, you know, our listeners know, if you go to an FFL or a federally FLL, federally licensed firearms dealer, then you have to complete a form to be able to purchase that firearm. There are broad categories of people who cannot legally purchase a gun or even possess a gun. So, you know, and, and among those would be convicted felons, anyone who's been convicted, convicted of a crime for which they could have received more than one year. It doesn't matter what you receive. You could have gotten probation. But if you could have received more than one year, you're a federal felon and you can't possess a firearm, any firearm. So, I mean, you hear people talking about assault weapons, which is a whole separate category. Those are already illegal. And then you hear semi-assault or semi-automatic, fully automatic. Fully automatics are already illegal. Semi-automatic, it, it doesn't matter what kind of gun it is. If you are a convicted felon, you cannot possess one. And also, if you've been court-martialed, if you're a fugitive from justice, if you're subject to a restraining order in domestic violence case, if you have been found guilty of misdemeanor domestic violence, but it included the element of actual violence or more than uh, more than conjectural violence. There are broad categories of people who cannot possess guns. So are there folks that went to do harm and went to a federally licensed firearms dealer and tried to purchase a firearm? I'm sure the answer to that is yes. Would they have gone ahead and committed the crime? Who knows? Who knows? So, the one category that I think is most interesting that doesn't get talked about, in fact, the last time we asked for data on it, when I was in D.C., the numbers were anemic. I mean, they were so small as to be almost uh, not worth counting. And, and there's a category of people who cannot lawfully purchase or possess firearms, and it's those that have been adjudicated, well, I mean, the statute says adjudicated mentally defective. That's not really the way we talk these days. So I, I would rather say adjudicated mentally ill. But that requires, you know, the word adjudicated means something. It doesn't just mean you've been diagnosed. It means you've been adjudicated. If there were movement in that area. I mean, I, I have not heard the case for allowing people with significant mental illness to purchase firearms. I have not heard anyone make the case that that's a good idea. But there are so few people that are, quote, adjudicated mentally ill that I guess that explains why there are so few prosecutions. But this is a long, rambling way to answer their question. People would be shocked at how few prosecutions there are under those statutes that don't allow. So this is the easiest way to say it, I guess. And I, I know I've mentioned Lance Crick's name before. Mm -hmm. Lance, still a federal prosecutor. When he was a federal prosecutor, when, when I was the DA and he was a federal prosecutor, and he's still one, we got together and said, you know what? I, after someone's killed us too late, why don't we see what we can do to take firearms out of the hands of people who are not supposed to have them before they commit murder or armed robbery? So we just decided every single 
unlawful possession of a firearm case, we're going to vet and we're going to see if we can't spend the summer kind of getting people's attention that if you're on this list, you cannot have a gun, period. I don't care what kind of gun it is. You can't have one. Why that's not done more often in other parts of the country? I mean, I think I know those cases are tough to stand in front of a jury because somebody has a gun and they have a convicted and they were convicted of a felony, you know, several years in the past. That doesn't have a ton of jury appeal. I get it. I've had to do it. I, I, I know the jury doesn't get fired up about someone having a gun in a glove box that's a convicted felon. What they get excited about are murder cases. Those are exciting. But someone's also dead. So if your goal is to prevent people from becoming dead, then why would you not prosecute the case before the crime is committed mm-hmm. or before the violent crime is committed? So, look, I know the last time I mentioned Lance's name, he got a bunch of calls from law enforcement officers saying, look, let's let's do that again. Let's try it again. So good. Keep calling him. If you want mm-hmm. a cell phone number, I'll give it to you offline. Ask me for it. But the best way to figure out whether or not we need more firearm statutes is to do a really good job prosecuting the ones that we do have. And the numbers I've seen um, were underwhelming in terms of federal prosecutions of firearms cases. Well, thank you so much, Trey. And thank you for the question. Our next question is from Paula in Tennessee. She writes, how can a background check be effective when juvenile records are sealed? Uh, That's a great question, Paula. There are at least two types of databases. For now, we'll just go with two probably more than two, but we'll go with that. Those for public consumption, like if you're an employer and you want to hire somebody and you can go on these, these public sites because, you know, a conviction's public record, an adult conviction for sure. So there are these background systems that are for public consumption. And then there are these background check systems that are for law enforcement. And I went to make sure nothing's changed since I left the U.S. Attorney's Office. You know, I I said in response to the earlier question, you cannot lawfully possess any kind of firearm, any firearm, if you're a convicted felon. Mm -hmm. But if you go to buy a gun today, if you go to a gun store to buy a gun, you have to fill out a form that asks whether or not you are even under indictment, whether you have been charged. So we know that there are databases that have more information than what's publicly available. I would think that that has included juvenile records. Now, whether juvie convictions are considered felonies, I mean, this is probably a really good time to let folks know the juvenile justice system is completely separate from the adult juvenile, uh, from the adult justice system, completely Mm -hmm. separate. The purpose of the juvenile justice system is to rehabilitate. The purpose of the adult criminal justice system is to punish. And and, and that's not like my theory on it. That's just a fact. They're completely different purposes. I will say this. If juvenile records are not, and and again, it depends on how old are you and and still considered a juvenile. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you have to be. 18 or above to be prosecuted in federal court. But in South Carolina, you can be 16 and considered an adult. 
You can be 14 and treated as an adult. So the more serious the crime, the more planning involved, the more heinous the crime, the more likely you are to be waved up and treated as an adult. So if juvenile records, if the juvenile adjudication system is not available to law enforcement or not available to people doing background checks, I don't, I'm more than fine if they make it that way. Doesn't bother me one bit. Uh, we got to figure out whether it already is. Doesn't bother me. I would not assume that juvenile records, just because they're sealed, I think they're sealed from the public. I don't think they're sealed from law enforcement. But, but the information still has to be inputted and it has to be inputted correctly. And then it has to be accessed correctly. It doesn't matter how good your database is. If the people responsible for entering the convictions or entering the restraining orders or entering the, the adjudications of being mentally ill, if they're not inputted correctly, then your database system is not as worthy or worthwhile as it should be. Mm-hmm. If, if memory serves me correctly, and I think in this case it does, the killer of nine black Christians in a church in Charleston had pending charges in one county, but not in another. So he lived in one county, but he had pending charges in a neighboring county. And for some reason, that was missed on the background check. It, it mm-hmm. should have been a it should have been a bar to purchasing the gun. Remember, he purchased that gun at, at a gun store. Mm-hmm. Had the information, I think the information was inputted correctly, but it wasn't accessed correctly. I could be wrong about that. If I am wrong, hopefully somebody will correct me because mm-hmm. I don't want to be wrong. But the best database system in the world is of is of no benefit if the information is not there. Last point I'll make on this. I mean, we had a criminology professor on the show Sunday night. I think if I understood him correctly, or maybe I read this in another piece of research, most of what we think of as mass killers, the, w- the way we think of mass killers, the concert shootings, the mall shootings, the church shootings, most of them purchased their, particularly the young, the young shooters, purchased their firearms in the days or maybe weeks leading up to the attack. So they purchased the gun specifically for the act of the mass killing. So contrast that with long-term, long-time gun owners that you know simply decide I've owned this gun for five years, but I'm going to go shoot up the local mall. I think the research indicates that is far less likely to happen than someone making a, a spontaneous purchase of a firearm after they have already formulated the plan uh, to wreak as much havoc and take as much life as they can. So these background checks are only as good as the information inputted, which involves oftentimes human error. And if juvie records are not included, I could care less if they are. The the more information, the better is the way I look at it, particularly when you're like evaluating somebody's criminal history. Well, thank you so much, Trey. And thank you, Paula, for your question. We'll answer more of your questions when we come back. 
Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Our last question is from Carolyn in South Carolina. She writes, do you think Baker took that meeting with Sussman and didn't know what he was up to? What's to be done about all this corruption? All right. So what Carolyn's asking is the FBI general counsel, Jim Baker, took a meeting with a a Democrat lawyer. uh, I think it's Michael Sussman Mm -hmm. and delivered information during that meeting uh, designed to get the FBI to investigate the Trump campaign. And again, the little deal there, you don't have to be in Washington very long. You know, having oppo research that your opponent, you know, has done this out or the other may or may not make it into the news. The way to get it into the news is to allow reporters, particularly friendly reporters on the left to write, well, the FBI is looking into it. That kind of validates the story. Mm-hmm. So that's why they wanted the FBI looking into it, because that's the story. It's it's not whether or not the information's true. It is the fact that the FBI considered it possibly true enough to warrant an investigation. So that's the background on it. And I guess the thing it was September 19, 2016. Sussman goes and meets with the general counsel, the top lawyer for the FBI. So these are the questions I think I'd be asking How does a lawyer with a political campaign get a meeting with the general counsel of the FBI? The general counsel of the FBI is a lawyer. It's not like a a bank robbery investigator. It's not like a real cop. It's a lawyer. So why did you go to the lawyer? How did you get the meeting with the lawyer? I don't know about you, Mary Langston. I can't call the general counsel for the FBI. I couldn't even get a return phone call. I certainly can't get a meeting. Mm-hmm. So how in the world did a DNC lawyer with ties to the Clinton campaign, just like that, get a meeting with the top lawyer at the FBI? Um, but uh, he did. And then, of course, you know, either the FBI or the lawyer leaks to the media that the FBI is, quote, investigating this. So I think the question, if, if I remember the cor- question correctly, Is it why do I think Baker took that meeting with Sussman? I think it's basically saying kind of that, but also why did he take it and didn't he know what he was up to? Um, Did he have any thoughts of where it was going to go? That kind of concept, I think. Well, I mean, all you need is like access to Google to know that Sussman was a lawyer heavily connected to the Democrat National Committee. Uh, you, you, you don't like need Starsky and Hutch or uh, the detectives from True Detective. You don't need Columbo, Rockford File. You don't need a great investigator. You, you really, if you can just spell Sussman and put it into your search engine, you can figure out who he is. Mm-hmm. So how the world's premier law enforcement agency wasn't able to do that, I suspect they were able to do it. The thing that's always vexed me is, I mean, just to be blunt about it, why is this even a big deal? The FBI Mm -hmm. was investigating the Trump campaign way before this meeting ever took place. 
I mean, that to me is the much bigger deal. What's the factual predicate for that? I think this makes the FBI look terrible that, you know, an oppo research lawyer can walk in and talk to the top lawyer and, 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 and plan an investigation. And look, that makes the Bureau look terrible. But the Bureau was already investigating the Trump campaign for months and months and months. So this, this is not the beginning of anything. It's a continuation of something. And then you got the role of the, the, the media plays. I mean, the media benefits from its relationship with the FBI. And anyone who doubts that uh, has been taking a nap for 20 years or so or longer. Mm-hmm. The, the, the media loves getting information it's not supposed to have. Um, there's supposed to be confidentiality surrounding investigations because reputations are on the line. I mean, the fact that you're looking at something doesn't mean somebody did something wrong, which is why the grand jury is supposed to be confidential. I mean, way back in the day, we couldn't even confirm when the grand jury met. We could not even confirm the day of the month that the grand jury met. And God forbid you ever tell a member of the media what the grand jury is investigating. God forbid that you, 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 you'll be, you'd be gone. That's just not the case anymore. The media benefits from its relationship with the FBI. They get tips, they get information, you know, they find out things about investigations, even though they're not supposed to, but the FBI also benefits from its relationship with the media. I mean, the FBI has had a terrible four or five past years, terrible. I don't know whether they know that or not, but it's been terrible. Mm-hmm. The media coverage is nowhere near as bad as the reality has been. So it makes you wonder, you know, the DC media had time to write a story about how, you know, Kevin McCarthy may have done on the Wexler IQ test or the Stanford Binet IQ test. And they got time to write a story as if any of them, I mean, who in the media is qualified to say who else is smart or not? Mm. Are you kidding me? Or, 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 I mean, are they like developmental psychologists? <laughs> but I digress. They've had a really, really rough four or five years, the Bureau has. But the media coverage has not been all that bad. So why does the D.C. and New York media cover for that branch of law enforcement while they're also going after state and local cops? I don't know, maybe because the FBI is such a good source of information for them. And that's the way the game is played. You give us information and we'll pull our punches when you mess up. The other thing to keep in mind is every act of malfeasance is not a crime. Some acts are just dereliction. And this goes to the corruption part of the question. Every act of malfeasance is not a crime. It is not a crime to be a lousy spouse. It is not a crime to be a lousy parent. It is not a crime to be a lazy coworker. There are plenty of things in our culture that are not good. They're also not crimes. There's some acts are just derelictions of duty. Then they mean you should be replaced, but it doesn't mean you should be indicted. An indictment cannot be the only way we express our displeasure with people that are in power. It has to be more than, well, they narrowly avoided indictment. Therefore, they must be doing a good job. No, no. I mean, indictment's like the most serious sanction 
in our culture. It's not the only sanction. It's just the most serious. So if you look back over the last four or five years, people with the Bureau have quit. They've lost their jobs. One FBI lawyer was prosecuted. And then even in that case, federal prosecutors turned around and asked the court for leniency for that FBI lawyer. So, you know, I have exceedingly high expectations for the way cops and prosecutors should comport themselves. The media regrettably does not seem to share those high expectations for the FBI. For state and local cops, they cannot write enough stories. For the FBI, all you do is read the media. You would know that they'd had a rough five years. Well, thank you so much, Trey. And thank you, Carolyn, for your question. Like I said, it was a lot of legal questions and they were all very thoughtful. Can I ask myself a question and um, and 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 answer it just because somebody asked me and I'm and I did oh, yeah. go and look at it. Yeah, of course. It's your go podcast. Ahead. It's your podcast. I don't want to barge in on your podcast. No, you go ahead. Uh, well, I, I've been asked a couple of times this week about you know whether there's a link between violent video games and mass shootings. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you may have heard that too. I um, have, yes, sir. And I and I'm not crazy about the culture that we're you know that you're growing up in. I'm already grown up, but I, I think it's way too violent. And you know, we talked about it Sunday night. I, I think it's really depressing that most people can name more serial killers than they can Nobel laureates. Mm-hmm. But at least the data that I have looked at, and I am certainly open to looking at things that that I haven't seen. There's like no connection between video games and mass killers. What there is, is a tendency for folks to blame video games or external factors when the mass killers are the same race as the person doing the judging. So I'm white, I'm evaluating white mass killers. I'm more likely to blame video games because it's an external factor. And, and and it it's it's complicated psychology, but people look for external factors beyond the group that they themselves are in. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm not a fan of young people or old people, for that matter, glorifying violence. I I think the research, at least what I have seen, and I look pretty hard, and I talked to some psychologist friends of mine. There is no link. Um, or there is next to no link between playing video games and shooting up a classroom full of children. There are links between being ostracized, a feeling like an outsider, wanting to make a name for yourself, wanting to go out in some misplaced, uh, heinous sense of, of fame. But in terms of playing video games. I mean, there may be a whole host of reasons not to play those video games. I don't know. I've never played them, but people looking for a connection between the playing of those games and mass killers. I think what psychologists would tell you is that is people looking for an external factor to explain away behavior in their own subgroup that they don't like. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Mm -hmm, It does. But you're right. There's been a lot of people that are asking those questions. Which is good. I want people asking, how in the world can this happen? I I, I want people asking that question. But, you know, sometimes it is easier to, to 
to blame external factors, particularly if it's external factors that we ourselves don't engage in. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole separate conversation about psychology. Well, maybe Kevin would we'll talk about it sometime. I don't know. After the length of my answers on your podcast this week, I, I doubt I'll be invited back. <laughs> but maybe your next guest can get into all of that. No, I, hopefully you will. That is an interesting thought. I mean, there's so much to it. Well, I love psychology. I love trying to figure out why people do what they do. Um, mm-hmm, I do too. It's maddening sometimes, but mm-hmm. you know, if you want to stop it from happening in the future, you probably need to understand all you can about why it's happened in the past. Right. It's got to start with some questions and trying to figure out the solution. That's what I'm all about. Solutions. Mm-hmm. All right, well, the solution for my uh, lengthy answers on your podcast is <laughs> on for you yours. to tell me that we're out of questions. So that's We the- are out of questions, but we like your lengthy answers. Um, and we appreciate all our listeners for sending us questions. I hope that y'all will continue to send them our way. Yes, send them. Uh, whatever the topic, because I don't know the answer, either force me to go find the answer or I'll just act like I didn't get it. I'll I'll do like I do at home and act like I didn't hear the question. (laughs) That'll work. Well, thank you so much. All right. Hope everybody has a great week. We'll see y'all. Bye-bye. Have a great week. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.